so let's do this now. Let's talk about excess and absence. Um, let's do it. Thank you for being <laughs> here, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, this is uh, I, 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 I enjoy your company, so this will be fun. Yeah, I mean, when I said that I was really interested in excess and absence, yeah, it sounds sort of like uh, some kind of abstraction, and it is on a level, um, but we experience it in our daily lives. And the more that I look at this stuff, I'll, t I'll explain to you how I first, like what first happened to me, right? I'm looking at these, I'm a musician, and... Um, so I'm always looking at these waveforms. And if you've ever seen the, like anyone, we've all seen waveforms, I think, but if you're not familiar with a waveform, if you remember the SoundCloud logo, it's like these 11 hash marks and then a cloud. And the hash marks increase in frequency or increase in amplitude until they suddenly form a cloud. Or any of those, you know, like we, we've all seen these symbols of the waveform. One thing that happened around 2000 is that um, something called the Loudness Wars started, and Rick Rubin started this thing. Mm -hmm. What happened was compression became digital. Now, compression was invented in like 1934 in like a fucking, you know, uh, like science quad of, of Abbey Road Studios, and they, they developed, uh, you know, I don't know if it was the Fairchild, I think it was an EMI. And the idea was to maintain sort of an equilibrium of of amplitude so that like nothing distorted whatever you were printing the music to. And you could then saturate that, you know, vinyl or tape uh, a little bit. So you could push the volume into the tape a little bit without distorting the tape. So it was like a pre-compressor to the tape, which also compresses, but didn't have a compression component. But... In the late 90s, uh, digital compression became really, really uh, powerful. And um, Rick Rubin, the first album to really undergo, the first album that marked the loudness wars was uh, uh, Californication, which he produced for the Chili Peppers. And if you look at that album, it actually just looks like, you know, 10 or 11, however many songs in it. If you look at the waveforms all in a row, flat giant chunky flat lines the only breaks in the whole album the only dynamics in the whole album are in between songs like where there's actual silence otherwise it's just a giant thick flat line of sound and the way that you make that happen and and the reason why i was aware of this back then is because my first band i'm a robot was caught up in the loudness wars I remember these conversations like you have to be as loud as the other band i, I was always like what do you mean as loud isn't there just like a loudness? They're like, no, it's actually perceived loudness. So there's suddenly the subjective component comes into this. So it's not that hmm. the peaks are any louder than any other peaks. It's that it's more loud throughout the entire song overall. So you get a perception of loudness. It feels so what, louder. It feels louder. And the yeah. way you do that, so you have dynamics, right? And we can think about dynamics as anything to do with life on earth, right? Vitality. Anything that's vital is dynamic. Anything alive is dynamic. Anything unique or uh, pluralistic is dynamic. And the song is likewise dynamic. And the dynamics of a song are, of course, like quiet to loud. But what you do when you're compressing, you bring all the valleys, all the troughs, they're called, up to the peaks. So you make all the quiet parts loud also. 
and thereby get rid of the any quiet part in the song and make the whole song loud so that you get a perception of loudness and it feels louder. That's why I like when a commercial comes on the, the TV and you've been watching a movie and it's kind of got some dynamics to it and suddenly the commercial seems way louder than everything else that was playing. It's because they're compressing the fuck out of that to try and grab your attention. So anyway, staring at these things and I'm, I'm, I'm compressing my own songs and I'm staring at these dynamics, previously dynamic songs that I recorded. So they're very vital, very alive. And then I apply compression and I started to notice that all the dynamics were going away. And we would lament that as musicians, but like, there's no more dynamics. What I started to notice is not just that there's no more dynamics, but that the result is isomorphic, meaning like equivalent to a flat line that preceded it or the silence or what we call the noise floor in engineering, music engineering. In other words, we come from silence. We come from this noise floor, which is just a line, like in a hospital when you're dying, it's just a line. We create all this music and then what we do to it through a process of so-called progress, technological progress, is condense it and collapse it back into a flat line. And suddenly this started to really appeal to me philosophically. And I started to think, number one, why are we, do why are we so interested in creating new flat lines, new equilibriums? And I started looking around at society, everything, you know, information, technological development, all of it, uh, personal desires for experience. And I started seeing everywhere the same pattern. Where Can I just we ask a question, Alex, yeah, about, about yeah, all yeah. this? Can I jump yeah. in just... Because I'm wondering, yeah. like, what the motivation for for this is besides the obvious motivation, right? The obvious motivation sure. is to capture people's attention, right, sure. and sell a lot of records, and you know, mm -hmm. and just really create an orgasm of music, right? That people are just like. Mm -hmm. But but then but then is there an artistic? Is there because Rick Rubin was a great producer, and is there an artistic motivation for this as well? And why are they do? Why why did they want to do that? Why did they want no. to take away dynamics and why did they want to, to flatten everything? No, it's a compulsive death drive. Yeah. <laughs> it's a compulsivity toward, I mean, and this is where it relates to philosophy and psychoanalysis. No, there's no artistic reason for it. The only reason is a compulsion, mimetic competition for attention. And that desire strictly the music doesn't sound better sounds worse in fact there's a great example where metallica put out <laughs> metallica put out an album i can't remember i think it's called monster monster something or magnet something monster magnets a band but it's called monster something and they put out the album and it was so fucking compressed that all the fans got really upset they put out the same album on, on guitar hero you know the game and somehow mm -hmm. Guitar Hero got a hold of a version that was like pre-mastered, so pre-fully compressed. Uh -huh. And all the fans were like rallying and it was this whole movement to try and get Metallica to replace their album with the Guitar Hero album because the Guitar Hero album was so much better because it wasn't so compressed. So people don't actually like... But isn't noise part of the punk rock ethic? Like, you know, like Sex Pistols... I remember Nirvana saying, oh, yeah, we wanted, you know, it was like, that's part of the, the aesthetic. nuance or not. Yes. So, so for instance, there's sublations within sublations. So there are points of excess within points of excess. So, 
For instance, distortion occurs by saturating to the point of excess, a very exact same process um, as compression. But instead, you distort the signal before recording it into the amp. So that's how amp uh, distortion was discovered by by finding the breaking point, the saturation point of the machine called the ampli amp the uh, amplifier. So there's noise that you're recording as a sound, right? But the overall recording still had dynamics. So you listen to Nirvana, you listen to uh, uh, Nevermind, and it has it's almost fully compressed. And in fact, Nirvana is a good example of this trend. It's so wild and it's so apropos of the death drive. It doesn't sound better, but what Butch Vig did, who produced that album, he took a single snare of Dave Grohl's. So they play the whole song, right? They're playing the whole song in real time. Then he goes back, he takes one snare and takes that snare and replaces every other snare that Dave Grohl played with that one snare so that the entire time all you're hearing is the same velocity, the same snare, the same sound at the same uh, 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 oh, wow. sort of okay. ult ultimate frequency, that, that mm -hmm. same loudness at all times. So what you end up hearing is this repetition. I know a lot of people who loved Nirvana beforehand who were really upset. They're like, you know, Nevermind sounds like shit. You know, it's all about Bleach or whatever, the previous albums, because of like little tricks like that. So if these things don't sound as good, why do we, why are we drawn to them? Why do we keep drawing ourselves to these equilibriums? You know, and um, and that's what got me started thinking about all this shit. Okay, so two questions. So first, why, why do you mention Death Drive? And, you know, one thing that came to mind is, you know, how mass media kind of operates because there also is kind of nuance missing and this constant barrage of information, but it's only very superficial on a level that creates clickbait and whatever, but it's, it's also this kind of constant noise that always has the same pitch in a kind of way. Yeah. Is that, is that a, a, a same, an example of the same phenomenon or what? Absolutely. Um, so let me put on my glasses here if I fucking have them. Do I not? Oh, here they are. Uh, I have a few little notes for this conversation. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up. So uh, the death drive um, and the reason why it's so controversial is that there are two conflicting aspects of the death drive. One is that it's a drive back toward the inanimate state, as Freud would say. Uh, to lead life back into the inanimate state is the actual quote. Um, but then the other is that through the process of wanting to be led back to the inanimate state, we create a whole lot of vitality and we translate that drive away from death. So it's simultaneously a move away from death and toward death. But the, the toward death is this unconscious drive. The move away from death is sort of like this conscious reflex um so anyway by considering uh, this is something i had written previously by considering humanity's relationship to inanimate states more deeply i want and so by inanimate states by the way what i mean is for instance the compression of a song that's an inanimate inert so anytime i talk about inanimate i'm talking about something that's non-dynamical so you took a dynamism a dynamic mm -hmm. track it's low and high and low and high and suddenly it's all ah it's just one flat line right it's non-dynamical mm -hmm. 
It's now, without it depth, right? That would be another no way to... Within itself. It intera interacts dynamically with the world, but in and of itself, within itself, it's no longer dynamical. As a system, it's now in a state of equilibrium. So every time I mention equilibrium, inanimate, inert, I'm talking about something non-dynamical. And again, you can imagine the waveform that just looks like a big, thick, flat line where all the valleys have been brought up to the peaks. So it's just maximal loudness, right? So this idea that we keep wanting to be led uh, uh, back to or, or develop relationships with inanimate states, um, because an inanimate state is also something else, something human humanity roundly considers the antidote to death. So while it's non-dynamical, we also view inanimate states as, well, these inert. This is a, a wordplay that I really like and is really powerful to me. We want these inert states because they give us inertia. We feel that there's something about reaching this inert state of non-dynamism, which gives us an inertia which combats death. And yet, it is a kind of death in that it's non-dynamical. And that's where we get like the idea of Hegel. This is why I suddenly, once I reached this conclusion, and I started reading Hegel, I was like, oh my God, my whole, like, it's all the same thing. So sublation is exactly that. Um, can I try to translate that into something yeah, that yeah. I can understand, maybe? Yeah. Um, so so there's this there's this intense let's say forward thrust of eros or movement or you know life right um yeah. and then and then it, it becomes there's a, there's a quality of it becoming too much uh-huh and then what the compression the compressed wall of sound does or something like that it stops that uh compulsive forward thrust it freezes everything for a second so that that one can sort of you can you can stop the 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 uh like it's a kind of it's a kind of stopping or something it's like a stillness or a it's like the stillness in the noise there's a relief yeah there's a relief in or the silence in the noise there's pure noise yeah. and then there's silence at the same time there's a you know it's like that 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 push to discover the limit experience in some ways is a push to stop pushing right um, and mm -hmm. so I think unconsciously, yes, there's a desire or a sense that in that frozen inert state, the inertia that's granted to you allows you to rest, allows you to become inert, allows you to stop being dynamical. Because while we say we love life and we love dynamism, we love change, and really we fucking hate change, right? Was, that's exactly what scares us. And so unconsciously we're driving toward this inert state where we no longer have to experience any dynamism any dynamism so in that way i'm translating what you said in, in a way that that jibes with uh with what i'm saying if that makes sense mm -hmm. what's interesting yeah. there was a couple of years ago there was an article about the music that emerged in the 2000s more or less and i, I don't know if it was vice an article or, or something but it highlighted the fact that um after 50 years of pop music people started to understand what makes a song great in a kind of way and so there was like this duo like these three people in sweden maybe you know the story better than i do remember the article so maybe you can clear that up but the idea was that there are like these three or four kind of songwriters that know uh, what kind of hook you need to make a song work and so all these big people at that time britney spears and beyonce and rihanna they were just like buying these songs because uh they're like 
very tightly structured and very predictably structured. So that comes to mind when you talk about death drive, because it's not really an eros that breaks forth in a kind of creative way to do something new, as if, you know, thinking about the Beatles and Abbey Studios, because you mentioned that, and they were, you know, testing your echo chamber, you know, at the backside of Abbey Road and every these kind of things. And and you had to record the way you, you sing it. And um, it's kind of dead this kind of music, like from the from the conception onwards. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man, uh, you know. Yeah, I mean, the Swedes perfected this thing. And the, the question as to, you know, the aliveness or deadness of it, this gets this gets to like uh, an important Lacanian concept like jouissance. It's like the enjoyment. Now, it can be translated in a number of ways, but the enjoyment here of something dead um as the essentially the 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 pinnacle experience that absents the self so this is where we get into the notion of how excess is like absence as a verb um and to excess uh, is also a verb which means to get rid of so you know you get to this you get to this point at which you suddenly are able to absent the subject and, you know, when we learn about predictive mind theory and the way that the mind works and the way that consciousness really is an apparatus to, to, to simplify it a lot, but the, the, the operation of consciousness for, from, for, within the subject is all about, and we've all experienced this, absenting whatever's in the uh, attentional frame. So, you know... Um, How's that? You're learning. You're learning why, to ride a bike. Well, because it's the most optimal way to 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 operate. So, meaning, for instance, you're learning to to ride a bike, right? And it's a it's been problematized. Now it's got your attention. You're right. You're focused on it. How do I make this work? And it's in these filling up the attentional frame. And you learn and you learn. This is the same with language acquisition with anything object identification you learn you learn bicycle riding a bicycle riding a bicycle riding a bicycle and suddenly you know how to ride a bicycle why so that you no longer have to worry about riding a bicycle so that it becomes second nature the mind is this mechanism to make everything second nature so right. you're not thinking about what is this what is this every time you see a fucking avocado right instead you had to learn it a few times you learned it through repetition it reached a, a, a quantitative threshold beyond which it absents. And suddenly you can interact literally unconsciously with an avocado where you're just like, you're just doing the avocado thing. But then it's dead, right? I don't then know. It's that a it's... Dead I mean, there could be an experience. <laughs> like I remember drinking a coffee the other day and having this like wide open experience of infinity, drinking a coffee, thinking this came from a coffee bean. And most of the time I drink a coffee, it's a mechanical, repetitive you know, act and it's just a representation of a coffee and I'm not really drinking the coffee, you know, I'm just, I'm just getting a fix. It's just mechanical. It's like what Gurdjieff says. It's like, you're a mechanical person. You know, so, I so, don't, so, so and then there's also a return to like, Oh, the avocado, right. You can come back to that original taste. Yeah, man. I mean, you know, we have, I, I have to be careful anyway, because to, to 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 I have to be careful 
not to label the automaton state as necessarily negative or not really living. For instance, good point, you yeah. can be in the zone, right? Like part of the point of like, for instance, meditation, right? Uh, and this kind of jumps way too far ahead, but in my view, meditation, to just summarize in a clunky way, is accessing the indeterminacy of the automated unconscious and allowing the entirety of the unconscious to sort of fill the conscious frame as the nothingness of everything, as Hegel would say. And so you experience absence because you are watching or witness to or allowing yourself to be engulfed by the saturation, the total saturation of everything, which appears or, or, or has a qualitative aspect of nothingness. And the reason it has a qualitative aspect of nothingness is because full saturations, again, like the total dynamism, create non-dynamical states which are absent of dynamism. And so you experience an absence of dynamism, which is to say you experience an absence of particularity, which is to say you experience an absence of uh, determinate thought. And you're just sort of in this totalized as uh, uh, one guy, I don't know if it was Chaim Smith or if it was Chungpa, but you mentioned that he described the sort of plenum as a full uh, uh, claustrophobia or like a total claustrophobia of saturation mm -hmm. of, of essence and whatever the case is. And so that presents itself qualitatively as nothingness. So anyway, so whether or not, you know, it's a bad thing to interact unconsciously with the world is highly contextual. Um, yeah. So for instance, the zone, like when we're in the zone, we might say, well, we're not necessarily aware of a lot of things. Time sort of absents. Our sense of identity may absent. Um, you know, all of those things, the parietal lobe shuts down, um, you know, and we're just, time passes, we forget to eat. Uh, and we're just sort of going. And that's a cool place to be. So yeah, so that that deserves a much more refined sort of conversation around like which one's good, how do we know that sort of thing, and it's something I talk about a lot with uh, Daniel Gardner on his Thursday uh, podcast, which is fun. Yeah. Well, maybe it's not a question of good and bad. It's just that we sure. we vacillate between those, you know, between a state of flow and then a state of just kind of like ordinary activity. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I so mean, just certainly, go, um, just go back to this. So, uh, uh, um, excess and that yeah. uh, example that you used would be the 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 wall of sound. You know, I think wasn't that the term of perspective sure. or something? Yeah, that, that's what you mean. That that where where everything is uh, compressed to one loudness. Yeah, a, a, a unity. Uh, you can almost think of it as a singularity. There's all sorts mm. of ways to think about this moment, and one of the coolest parts about this and most challenging, I think, for a lot of people sort of rhetorically is that the only way that you can experience an excess or have an excess occur is, is the presence of limitation. And um, and so in the case of music, you know, you have the limitation of the, the machinery. Um, in the case of the subject, the limitations of cognition, uh, you know, um, there's limitations sort of everywhere uh, but they're responsible for the phase shifting because other things uh, otherwise things wouldn't shift right um and so there's these limitations and one of the things that you know like for instance the wall of sound i guess i bring this up because when we think about 
a unity, like a wall of sounds. There's all these determinate pieces, but they're creating, not in Phil Spector's case, but let's just abstract from him and take that, that phrase as a good phrase, a wall of sound, just sound. You don't know what's in it. It's just a wall of sound. It's a unity. And the thing that allows us to create that unity and you could you know some of us have a good relationship to the idea of unity and it pleases us other others of us like be like fuck unity there's no such thing right which is a very death drive sort of thing to say ironically um but that unity can only occur because it's being constrained within a given limitation and um and for most of us that limitation even in the context of a wall of sound is our own subjectivity because if you were a Superman with no limitations on your uh, sensorial capacities, <laughs> you would be able to determine every little aspect, right? You'd see every single little uh, uh, sonic carrier. Um, Let me ask you something. So, so I do yeah, understand. Yeah. I, I think I do kind of understand what you mean with these examples about music. And then we had, you know, the idea of media. So, how does that relate to to consciousness? Because, you know, if I think about it i would think that some form of st enlightened state or or, or non-dual state or, or um, heightened state of consciousness is that kind of access where everything comes together and you have like an awareness of that wall of cognition where you're not focusing on one thing but everything is there right yeah. and because yeah. like 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 you are you are in in, uh, in bed with your lover Right and 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 you connect on all levels and suddenly the, uh, the the whole room breathes love or whatever you know it's like everything is there that's comp you know it's like is that what you mean or um, <clears throat> yeah they're all they're all they're all related so even in those moments like you're describing like you're close to a lover and there's a thing in the moment and da da da, da and it's like <gasps> and these things exceed momentarily they exceed our capacity to schematize. So in the context of bringing this to consciousness, like Keltner, whose first name I'm forgetting, there's a drummer named Jim Keltner, so I don't mean him. Keltner and uh, Jonathan Haidt have done a bunch of work on awe and even done a bunch of studies very recently because awe is becoming this sort of focal point of, of conscious study. Um, awe is simply that which exceeds our momentarily exceeds our capacity to schematize it to categorize it it's sort of an intercategorical monster for a moment it's just like <gasps> the grand canyon <gasps> uh this moment <gasps> it's like there's no language and then we bring that to lacan and lacan's notion of like what is the real is that which resists symbolization absolutely and so we have these moments of these confrontations we usually explain like the real is this awful thing but can also be awesome Right. If we're trying to schematize it, like in trying to categorize what this moment is, then it can become awful. But if we allow ourselves to enjoy the excess, enjoy the moment of the oneness or whatever, it can become awesome. Um, the moment of being with someone and you experience something incredible and it's beyond language and then you try to schematize it and you say, wow, this is really amazing, huh? We've all probably experienced how saying something kills the vibe. Like, have you ever experienced that? Like, you actually put a name on it, and it's like uh, suddenly it all just falls apart, and you're like, shit, I shouldn't have said anything. 
don't know if you've experienced well, that, but okay. I've so in my sorry, sorry, Alex, in my language, that would be the the uh, the struggle with chaos on one side, because you're you're entering a state where you you don't have schemas yet or a language to describe what's happening that can happen in all kind of activities, and then yeah. then there's the other side which always goes hand in hand with it it's this kind of sacrifice where you sacrifice the complexity and the awe in your words for for a concrete descript description right and so you, you you sacrifice the many for for the one you you gain something but you lose a lot right and so that that, is, that yeah that's uh, that's right mm. that's exactly right and 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 something that language seems to do is collapse indeterminacy i mean that's sort of the point right that's the whole concept of language is to give these otherwise indeterminate items a determinate uh, a designation and by doing that we collapse their otherwise indeterminate uh, uh you know these otherwise indeterminate othernesses which host in and of themselves their own uh saturated infinite interiors uh, we collapse them into these determinate items because that makes us feel safer, right? And um, and so I think that's part of why, you know, being an artist is not just some, or anything like that, a meditator, someone who's developing a relationship with their own limitations and saturating those limitations and experiencing self-absence vis-a-vis the excess of a mantra or the excess of time spent meditating or the 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 yeah. whatever the case is there's an there's the good example and i can't remember the word for this but a good example of what excess does and how it reintroduces the indeterminate or the in the the state of intercategorical awe is um whatever the word is for when you think of a word say airplane and you just say the same word over and over airplane airplane you keep saying the word airplane airplane you think about airplane airplane and all of a sudden it starts to not mean airplane anymore you've created through repetition and through excess you've placed it back into its indeterminacy by filling your conscious frame with airplane 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 and filling it you create a saturation within the conscious frame that throws airplane back into indeterminacy back into potential it's like when you stare stare at someone's face for too long and suddenly they turn into like a ganesh you know yeah, shiva you take lsd or whatever mm -hmm. yeah but if you stare even if we were to just stare at each other's face for too long like you'd start to look like someone else no you don't you know, need you don't need the lsd right yeah you just shape shift and it's like because you you stare at them in excess yeah that's what you mentioned mantra practice it was very interesting that you mentioned that because because it's something that I've been engaged in. And what I've noticed is that the more you do it, it is kind of an excess because you you just you you focus your mind on one thing for long periods of time and, and to the exclusion of everything else. And then everything tries to clamor and and, and enter that, and you just keep doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it. So it, it, in a way, it's a sort of uh, schizophrenia, right? You're 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 doing this mantra where you're separating yourself from yourself. You're completely separating yourself from the experience, and probably, you know, if there's also the visualization that goes along with it, and all, you know, all kinds of elaborate things. And but that sort of that 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 could be called, you know, I was talking to Cadell about this, and he said he said that's mental illness, and I was like, yeah, that's correct. That is mental illness, and as long unless you're sane and you're doing it, right? Unless you can get, keep that that sanity, so. 
So uh, there's a way in which you you overwhelm everything with this particular, you know, mode mo mode of concentration, and then suddenly I'm I, I'm out of it, and I see my 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 son's face, and I I see his eyes, and 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 I'm not in I'm I'm no longer in the world of representation anymore, even though the mantra itself is a pure kind of representation, a pure symbol. I, I mean, so it's a symbol that you're using to to break free of all the other symbols. Yeah, the dead giveaway is that if you have a mantra, it doesn't work on the first repetition, the first time you say it, right? It doesn't work on the second either. There's some quantitative threshold, and that's what we're talking about when we're talking about excess. We're talking about some limitation that you discover through repetition, and then at that quantitative threat, that's why it's a mantra. That's why you say it over and over again. That's why the repetition of it works as it does, or focusing on your breath. It's not like focus on your breath, and the second you do, it works. It's because through the persistence of that focus suddenly through time across time the persistence of the same activity through time reaches a given quantitative threshold beyond which suddenly the thing happens yeah and, and the orthodox monks can do it even in their sleep there they do it all the time it, it becomes a permanent kind of activity yeah. it's very interesting anyway go ahead tom no no no, no. i was just uh, throwing it in there the quality of the mantra changes if you yes it. Yeah, mm. also. Yeah. Exactly. That's the exactly. idea. It starts mm. to mean you have the mantra could be cracker, cracker. And then all of a sudden you say it enough. And again, just like staring at someone's face and suddenly they turn into Ganesh or some multi-faced multi being, cracker suddenly means fucking who knows. It's got, it's the secret of the universe all of a sudden because it returns to indeterminacy because you've saturated it. And when you saturate it, you take away its determinate qualities and you reintroduce it to its own potential, which in and of itself is isomorphic to, and this is, this is the part that's a little heady, but this is an important part of the excess because it's part of the spirit. It's part of the really inherently spiritual aspect of consciousness and of this whole concept and how we operate is that when you identify something in repetition to the point where it becomes indeterminate, where it becomes sort of like not just a cracker. Like you say, you do the mantra and all of a sudden the mantra means something else. Um, when those saturation points occur, if you take any saturation, doesn't matter what saturation, if it's a complete saturation, you can draw a line from any point in that saturation to any real infinity any true infinity. So any, for instance, the real numbers, you could take any point in any saturation and may draw an equivalency from every single point to the infinity of the complete density of the real numbers. <laughs> and what that means is every time we do that in our minds and create an excess in our minds where we're suddenly absented, isomorph we're, we're suddenly isomorphic in theory, to every point in the universe. So suddenly we have resonance. You could draw a line from any aspect. If you could take a piece of that saturated thought, you could draw a line from every place in that thought to every aspect of the universe. Now, of course, that's very speculative, but it's very interesting that, for instance, in mathematics, those, those infinities 
occur and they call them in mathematics uh, undefined but if you ever seen a waveform and then this is the other way saturations occur not just you know compressing them but they happen vertically or, or horizontally where they smush together you've seen a waveform and it's speeding up kind of like it's getting to a singularity and it gets to zero and suddenly it's just become this blob at the center well they call that undefined but that undefined section is isomorphic to the entire real number line so again an excess um, being, you know, that's interesting. Is, but there are hermetic traditions that explicitly say that every number is infinite, and I think that's the idea that you want to express. Yeah, yeah. basically. Yeah, yeah I mean, every I, I think of things. Every number is infinite. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh no, I mean, I think of things like I don't think of things in mathematical terms. I think of things in mythopoetic, you know, symbolic, you know. So when you're saying density, I'm thinking Malkuth, which is the dense part of the earth, right? It's the bottom. Mm. And then and then Keter, which is emptiness up here. And they're they're actually a unity. The Malkuth mm. and Keter are, are a unity. So so the most dense place is the place where is the is is the place where the most spaciousness occurs simultaneously. Or something like that. That's what I'm yeah. kind of that's the kind of anal analogous thinking that I'm that I'm I'm, I'm feeling when I, when you're when you're saying these things. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's always blows my mind how many parallels there are in this sort of, you know, uh, metaphysical, philosophical thought to, you know, Eastern uh, rhetorical, metaphorical language. It's kind of shocking every time. Yeah, well, that's in the West, though. Like the, the, Jew, the, 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 uh, the, the number system of the Kabbalah is very, you know, it's, you can, you can, it's very similar to, let's say, the, you know, the, the chakra system or something like that in the in the east and yeah there's all of these yeah analogous systems that were kind of they're there somewhere in the bottom of civilization and then all these complex philosophies arise i think from from a lot of these primal insights that sages had at one point or hmm. yeah, so what yeah. what do you do with that alex because i mean it's a i mean it's a theory it's a philosophy it's an insight it's a vision uh, whatever you might call it, but it's like, how does that translate to 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 life, to daily life, in your life, maybe? So, so, um, well, does it I mean, does it have to translate? I mean, for me, it translates all day long. I mean, it it informs just about everything uh, for me. So, you know, a concrete example would be like uh, an Osho meditation. Uh, how do you get happy when you're sad? Well, you become more sad. You've clearly not exhausted your sadness. You've clearly like not reached your limitation beyond which the sadness becomes non-dynamical and dead. So there's an Osho meditation where you, if you're sad, you become more sad and more sad. No, sadder than that. I'm the saddest creature on the fucking face of the earth. Nobody sadder than me. Ah! And then you just keep going and it becomes totally ridiculous. And then you start laughing. Something breaks and you reach this threshold and you start laughing. It worked every time for me. But that's just like an example that I rarely, that rarely occurs. Um, but, you know, I mean, you're hungry, you eat enough, you reach some limitation. Ah, oh, you're not hungry anymore. You're in uh, equilibrium. It's it informs literally everything that that occurs in my life. There's excess points, and then those those aspects absent themselves, and you're at a new equilibrium. That's you know? so funny. I, I'm just reading. I'm just reading the Iliad from from Homer. I I, I was having conversations with Andrew about this, and there's this this moment when um, Patroclus dies, and everybody is sad, 
And then there's like this peculiar kind of description of what happens. It's like everybody is hungry for sadness. And then they, mm. they you know, then they kind of, uh, what would be the, the English translation for this? You know, they, they, they feed on sadness till, till they're done, till they're full mm. and they can move on. Yeah. Right. And it's like it's very it's like traditional, right? 3000 years old, that's book, you know, so yeah. I love that. That's 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 it. <laughs> that's what people used to do. This lamenting, intense lamenting, right? Yeah. Right. And, and just intense grief and lamenting. We don't do that anymore. It's a mistake, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, uh, I think that's that's very interesting. Maybe the art arts are, are the way that we kind of do that as best we can is, you know, secondarily through through music and things like that. Just sort of like to get that intensity out of our out of our yeah, system. I mean I was talking to a friend yesterday. So this is a really great example of how it works into my life in terms of like, you know, trying to give people, like help people with it. And I didn't tell him anything else about it. But he's a, an artist, a painter. And I was like, you know, I really love your lines. You've always, I've known him since I was three. I was like, you always had the same lines. I can always tell your paintings, even though they're different, because I see the lines. And he's like, yeah, you know, I don't know if I like my lines anymore. I'm kind of <laughs> sick. Of, I'm kind of sick of my lines. I just don't know what to do, I, but I can't get away from them. So I, I don't know what to do. I feel stuck. I was like, well, why don't you try this? Try an experiment where you do your line in such repetition to such excess. Like you take, you put aside a month and you do just the lines always. And you're doing a, 10 paintings a day where you're doing the lines and you're focusing on the lines and do it in excess until suddenly they start to look different to you until you reach this threshold point beyond which, and I gave him the example of like staring at someone's face and suddenly they look different or saying the word airplane over and over again or avocado and suddenly it means you don't even know what and suddenly you re-potentiate the very yeah. thing that you had become bored with. That's what Cezanne did. I don't know if you know the story, but he was trained in classical painting, right? And he mastered it, but it was it was very dead to him. And um, you know, he just he kept going until he had mastered the form. And then he took all his paintings and he, he burned the entire thing. He just he just took a bonfire to everything he had did before. And then he came out with this a perspective kind of painting, and you know, uh, you know, he invented this whole form with light, and you know, he invented an entire mode of being by completely exhausting and destroying the previous uh previous mode so the more you destroy the more the more that that something can arise uh that that you know i mean it's also yeah. like a biological truism of of uh, mm -hmm. evolutionary theory that evolution re re repeats the the patterns again and again till every niche every possible niche is kind of occupied till that magical moment happens and in a you know in a very tight short moment after this long period of repetition something new can arise and um and something strange and and wonderful happens mm -hmm. yeah and that's and and by the way what you guys are pointing at and especially what you just said andrew is that that's the curiosity of success because you described it as destroying your art but it's also perfecting your art right or or doing it in such repetition till it exhausts itself but that point of exhaustion that non-dynamical point of exhaustion is what we generally call success you know it's like yeah. once you've mastered this thing you've done it so much and you can't do it wrong now well now you've exhausted it and it's done 
Now, the people that become really sad, fucked up artists, in my view, are the people that then hold on to that because suddenly yeah. that's their brand. And they've reached this inert state that gives them artistic inertia, but they are artistically inert. Yeah. You know? I remember Johnny Rodden saying, like, he did a Sex Pistols reunion concert, and he said it's like a Civil Wars re reenactment. It's just a reenactment, a reenactment, a reenactment. Most of these crappy mm. rock bands, that's all they do. I think you're different in that way, that you're 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 always trying you're always moving to a new mode or um trying. Yeah, that's yeah, what we should that's what we that's what we need to do. But it's, yeah. it's a it's a it's a very difficult process, isn't it? Especially the especially if you find something that works and to figure out a way to, to let go of that to um uh, especially if it's working. So you you become the victim of your success. If you manage to, if you manage to, to to get the formula right, right, that's the moment where it becomes a dead, or it becomes dead. Yeah. 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 That's when it becomes pure commerce. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Commerce, exactly. Just a product. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the way you integrate that into your daily life. That and other thing. I mean, when I look at AI, I I I I overlay this uh, this framework over everything that that will accept it, and almost almost everything does. Uh, you know, if you want to master something, you know, whatever the case is, um, you know, I mean, coming is a great example. I mean, there it's just everywhere. You know, you have self absent, and suddenly you're not horny anymore. I mean, the perfect example of like. Mm excess absolutely and the excess literally spits out of your dick i mean it's just like and then you and then you self-absent and you can't think of anything for a moment and you're just in this momentary bliss <laughs> you have no thoughts i mean it's a perfect example and it's just oh it's just everywhere mm. <laughs> yeah mm. uh, the mother the mother is at a point bur is burst like gets to a point of full-blown saturation and then expels uh the excess as the child i mean you know i can go fucking on and on yeah. well I, I was interested you're talking about all this like saturated music or the the war of, of noise you know in the 90s or whatever yeah. and then and then I, I i guess the 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 and you know marshall McLuhan talks there's a flip right when something becomes extreme then media flips into something else then then there would there would be quietness or silence or more quiet music that would, would probably or more dynamic or more deep or or quiet music that might arise after that sort of extreme moment of, yeah, I think he calls him a break boundary, if I'm not mistaken. And um, yeah, the, those mm. those break boundaries are are fascinating. I mean, you know, and and he views it in the exact same way. He has a quantitative threshold that leads to a qualitative shift as well. For instance, like uh you know, enough towns make a city, enough cities make a I don't know, like a you know, like enough traffic makes a fucking traffic jam i mean like he viewed everything like in, in then, those terms and something is lost right and then something is like is, re is regained at the same time something is discovered uh you know um with every new media thing and i mean you know the, the, that's why i like keeping bringing it back to the to the waveform idea because um so we think, you know, just to clarify when we think about equilibrium a lot of people think about like oh everything's in harmony so that's not quite what I'm talking about. I'm talking about more like a physical equilibrium, like, um, you know, uh, universal heat death or something like that. Or when, for instance, typical like heat, uh, phys physical uh, 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 equilibrium, when you put ice in water, 
it's non-equilibrious, right? Because you have ice and water, you have difference. But when the ice melts, you have thermal equilibrium. You have just water. So I'm talking about self-sameness, right? Or what Hegel would call infinite self-relation. Water and water on water. And it's just water, right? And so what's cool about that is that is an equilibrium. And when we think about sound, well, sound travels around equilibriums. So the positivization, like if I was going to positivize all of these collapsing of dynamisms, and this is, by the way, where it really, Tom, focuses in on like how I view the world, is that these collapses aren't purely bad, right? So these non-dynamical moments aren't necessarily bad because they are, after all, equilibriums. Mm -hmm. And right. what do we use equilibriums for? We use them as the new grounds of becoming. And suddenly it's the new thing on which we build. So you you have the, you know, whatever. You have the exhausting of feudalism and sort of, but feudalism That's doesn't- It's the Hegelian play. negativity again, right? Sort of. It's it's like, a, yeah, the process like of that. sublation and, and the dialectic. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's interesting. We just had yesterday a talk with Pamela de Saplaja, yeah. and we were talking exactly about that kind of thing that ebb and flow of arrows, basically, you know, so- yeah, and, and and Tom was mentioning like she was talking about eros and becoming a more alive, and so but the eros is also like the desert. It's those empty moments. It's not just we tend to grasp onto the peak, right, and not the valley. We tend to be searching for the peak moment and wanting to hold on to that peak moment, and and uh, and, and not having enough appreciation for the for let's say the the um, the absence or the, or the yeah. And I think or, the I think the trick of life. You know, like understanding that success is non-dynamical, that like everything I'm trying to gain is in the end non-dynamical and simply going to serve as my next equilibrium for the next thing is really helpful because then that in that sense, I don't feel weird about like and as, as if I'm a self-destructive being that I'm always blowing up my creations. Instead, I recognize that that impulse is actually a very healthy uh, uh uh, facing of the reality of success and the reality of um, of drive and and what we're after, and um, so yeah, I mean, failure is always inherent in success, and then inertia is always absolutely. inherent in depends what you drive and drive, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I started baking recently, and I I made these fucking macarons, you know, like the macarons. <laughs> I live in France, so yes, I know those. Okay. Things. Not macaroons for anyone watching macarons, so they're very difficult to make. Listen, to this, some of these some of these directions blew my fucking mind. Uh, it was like, first of all, take egg whites and whip them for like twenty minutes. Who the fuck came up with that? How did they come up with that shit? Yeah. You know how much you know how much failure, yeah, had to occur. Like, I always then, wonder how they invented a croissant. Like, how did they come up with yeah, that? Like, and, and put like the butter flaky, layer. flaky layers of, of, of pastry. Yeah, and keep <laughs> taking cold butter. Like, go freeze the butter, yeah. bring it back, put it into a layer, fold that, put it in the freezer, they can bring yeah. it back. And then the other thing was like, you know, after you bring it out, you squirt all these things so that you can create the, uh, uh, whatever the thing is. And then before you put it in the oven... Let it sit out for an hour so that the egg whites form a skin so that after they form a skin, you put it in the oven, it rises. And I'm just sitting there thinking like- It's alchemy, basically. This success, and I did it successfully, but my success 
at making the macarons, which were delicious, was basically a giant compilation of failures. There's no way I could have done that without a historical landslide of failure underneath me. Um, yeah, right. And, and uh, you know, that's a lot a... of grief and, uh, you know, gnashing of teeth and, and just yeah. to get that. But that's culture, isn't it? Yeah. 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 That's yeah. Yeah. How many plants are there in the Amazonas and to, you know, tens of thousands and to mix two together to take, to create right. this blue ayahuasca. That's like, what the fuck? How? And so you have like this competing uh, explanations that trial and error or just, uh, yeah, the ghost told us, you know? So uh, what yeah. is it? Probably hmm. a little combination of both. Right? Um, uh, yeah. Like, I think we're silly not to believe in ghosts and things like that at yeah, this I mean, particular point us. point in history. I, but that's yeah. me. I'm... Maybe someone dreamed up macarons and came up with the recipe as God told them. Sometimes it happens in a dream. <laughs> sometimes it happens in a dream, doesn't it? Like, doesn't a song, like great songs, sometimes occur oh, yeah. in dreams? I, you know, I've, I've written a bunch of songs coming straight out of dreams. Straight out of dreams. You wake up and the song is there in some yeah. complete form. And how did that happen? And, yeah. I had a really interesting one with um, who's the guy who sings Werewolves of London? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, totally. I know the song. Um, okay. Yeah, Warren some Warren Zevon. Warren Zevon. Yeah, Warren Zevon had just died, and I wasn't a big fan of his or anything. I appreciated Werewolves of London or what whatever, um, but I knew that he was cool and people liked him. And I had a dream, not too long after he died. And I'm on this field and I'm, I'm clearly in the afterlife and I know I'm in the afterlife and there's this big hill and there's a concert going on over there in this sort of this uh, stage and I, and it's Warren Zevon and I'm like, oh, he's died. He died. I'm in the afterlife at a post uh, post mortal Warren Zevon concert. This is incredible. And he's playing uh, werewolves of London and he's going, ah, woo. Werewolves. and right. And, and I'm sitting on the field and all of a sudden then he launches into a new song. And I'm listening to a song and I know, and I notice in the dream, I go, that's not, that's a new Warren. He wrote that in, like he wrote that in the afterlife. <laughs> this isn't a song. This is a new song. And I remember hearing it and I woke up. He gave you a song. Gave me the song. I woke oh, up wow. with the song and I like tried to write it down. And this is amazing now that happens. Yeah. I dreamt once a new Dawes song, but I couldn't really? remember that. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I like it. That's good. Yeah, it's the AI that can do like new songs of Nirvana, no, and and stuff like that. That's uh, incredible. Yeah, AI mm -hmm. is a good example of of you know an ex super saturation. Like, yeah, I mean, you know, the developers. There's all these amazing, hilarious, scary articles now coming out that uh, developers are all just admitting that <clears throat> developers of AI have no idea how AI works. Once they develop it and they set it into the wild. They don't really understand how it's improving itself. Uh, it's it's basically a black box, um, and of course that's not because AI has a black box. It's because we have cognitive limitations and we can't. It's in excess of our capacity to understand, and so it goes absent, and so we have no idea. It's not like oh, we have some ideas. Like it's in such excess that we end up having no idea, um, and uh, and so. AI suddenly is starting to mirror our own relationship with our unconscious, which is also mm -hmm. in excess of our capacity to understand. Yeah, our, our consciousness so that, that's, itself. 
That's a question. Oh, so can AI write a song? I mean, can it really write a song? I was like, it can mimic a song for sure. It's just, I don't know. I don't know if I haven't looked at, what do you think about that? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it can write a song. It can write a song. It can write a song. I know that. But can it write a song, you know, a real song? That you feel? Yeah. I mean, it oh, yeah. can stimulate feeling in you, but is it, you know, is it, is it, sure. Is, I mean, it, is, it, is it something worthy of, of like, I don't know, like a, a macaron? Is it like a, the macaron that you made? Or is it just a, 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 a simulacrum of a macaron? You know, I mean, uh, we can't tell simulacrum. That's the whole thing. Simulacrum problem. I mean, you brought up Britney Spears in the early 2000s. Um, people fucking love Britney Spears. I mean, Britney Spears has saved people's lives who were going to kill themselves because they related to her so much. And they were written by a bunch of Swedes uh, trying to capitalize on uh, pop music. And mm. they fucking really spoke to these kids. Right. So I have this. Mm theory or a working theory and it's it's just a provocation but human depth what we've taken to be human depth is essentially a scaffolding on top of a fundamental shallowness that algorithms are now revealing algorithms are revealing in a lot of ways the early 2000s and pop music were algorithmic sort of like you know detection points where it's like you said there was so much pop music that slowly we started to be like, okay, this, this, that, 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 this, these are the components. This is what sells, this is what makes people feel. And they started to realize humans are really simple. This is actually all you need. This thing about this, this chord here, this right. thing there, blah, blah, blah. Uh, melody you can play with one finger and uh, that's it, you're done. And um, algorithms are now taking that to the next level where they're really revealing these synaptic shortcuts to jouissance, to enjoyment. And, you know, uh, I worked with a, a Swede uh, producer, great guy. He he uh, died recently. He killed himself. But um, uh, Avicii, um, and um, you know, we were making a few songs, and he was really brilliant in the studio and very concerned with uh, melody and uh, super meticulous. Very Swedish uh, in that sense regarding music. And we wrote the demo, what I thought was a demo. And I said, okay, cool. I mean, it sounds like shit. So obviously we're going to re-record it. He's like, no, what are you talking about? His point of view was nobody cares. They don't care what it sounds like. They just want to make, they want to kick. They, they care with a kick. They care with a few things. They don't care if it's like an actual piano or if there's actual dynamism and it's a real player yeah. or if the bass is being played in a real way or by a real person. They don't care. They just need the blueprint. But and, he, but he died through suicide. I mean, yeah, I can see why. <laughs> that's a very that's a very brutal thing to say. But 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 I don't I don't think that that's probably. I'm fair. sorry, that's a very brutal thing to say. It's what came into my mind. I, I I hear you though, given the context of what I said. But it's probably not. Well, I will say this: he didn't like the music he was making. He told me that first day we worked together. He's like, I hate this shit. Yeah, I only yeah. do this because it was the first uh, thing package I got, like sound package I got, and I happen to be really good at it. But I actually really don't like this music, which is why he was working with me and other people like that, trying to expand himself. And um, but yeah, I think he was generally unhappy with uh, making commercial shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there is a point where you know, I don't know, like the Jewish songs is one thing, and then there's then there's the suffering and 
and the real and, and all that that you you have to come to terms with. Yeah, you might be right. I mean, maybe the maybe the ultimate there's a saturation threshold again. So I, you know, again, working my my excess into this, it's like, okay, so it's revealing these synaptic shortcuts, it's revealing a fundamental shallowness, which then reveals itself through repetition of this shallow sort of synaptic shortcut jouissance, uh, commercialization and, and commodification of all things reaches its own threshold, its own limitation, beyond which another <laughs> phase shift occurs right so yeah, I, I, keep, yeah. I keep seeing the positive in, in everything yeah. and, that, and that's one of the results yeah. of this this sort of premise uh is that if anything has a limitation if limits are ubiquitous to all things that means that all things exhaust themselves so then this too shall pass whatever is occurring will exhaust itself and produce a new equilibrium or the ashes from which the next phoenix rises. Well, there's a way in which the worst period of like, in a way that in some ways, the time we're living in is a pretty mediocre. It, 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 it's, it's spectacular in one way, and it's extremely mediocre on the human yeah. level, it feels to me. But on the other hand, it's the best time to be alive because because of all that mediocre mediocrity, nobody gives a fuck. Uh, in the sense that nobody's going to burn you at the stake for being very playful and experimenting and doing things and, and being creative. And uh, you know, I mean, that, here's a great example. Uh, sorry, Andrew. I would say because of the mediocrity you see when something is really authentically good and new. That's true. That that mm -hmm. also. Mm -hmm. That also. There's an example of excess absence that I that I like a lot with modern culture, and it has to do with Gen Z kids. Uh, and I've confirmed this with them with, you know, whatever, some leading avant-garde faction of them. But I think it's true. Um, so irony, right? So irony is theoretically the opposite of earnestness. And we're living in a time of like ubiquitous ir irony. And I would call it like a state of ironic realism. Zizek has this thing where it's called ironic distance, but I think that that's almost over now. So ironic distance was this idea that... Um, you know, uh, I'm a little nervous. I'm American citizen. I'm aware of the weird history of America, but it's July 4th and I want to be able to celebrate, you know, Independence Day. But I don't want to be able to take it. I don't want to take it seriously and risk uh -huh. my status. I don't want to risk my social status by taking it seriously and be seen as that guy. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do all the things, but I'm going to do them ironically. Oh, and I'm going to yeah. make it obvious that I do it right. So you get to do the exact thing that you're sort of in opposition to, but you get to do it with the veil or the really the armor, the social armor of irony, right? So ironic realism is absolutely ubiquitous. Think of every meme. I can't even think of a meme that isn't somehow laced with irony. Now you think about Gen Z kids growing up in this memosphere where everything is laced with irony. What happens? Suddenly now, Everything is protected from uh, judgment because that's what irony does is it protects you. It's a, it's a protector, right? It's an armor yeah. against sort of judgments. Like, well, yeah, you're not one of those people. I didn't really mean to do the thing. Mm -hmm. Everything is with a wink, right? So mm -hmm. now if everything is with, with a wink, well, guess what? Now I can do anything I actually want to earnestly. So suddenly this ironic realism is a return of earnest uh, uh, earnest behavior. And you have this sort of like very earnest embrace of 
things that aren't like, you know, my preference, but very commercial things like people earnestly loving Beyonce and earnestly loving Coca-Cola and earnestly loving Avatar without any hint of irony. They've been totally liberated to become sort of commercial pilots. And um, well, that's performatism, isn't it? Well, no, they're, they're not. The Gen Z kids, I don't think, are being performative. For instance, no, like I mean, like performative in the sense yeah. after postmodernity, this kind of way we pretend that something is true and beautiful as if, although we know it's kind of relative, but we pretend and by this act of pretending it becomes true. Sure. Right? There's a manifestation aspect. Yeah. What about this like TV show, which is like fake Fleetwood Mac? Uh, I, I can't oh, remember yeah. what it's called, uh, but I was watching some yeah, of it and listening to some of the music. And the music's pretty good, like for pop music. It's funny. <laughs> it's like it sounds like uh, good Fleetwood Mac music, almost better than Fleetwood Mac actually sounds. Yeah. Which is kind of interesting that they 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 did they did an ironic theatrical, or or extremely earnest, and yet, um um, and, and it kind of worked. It's like it's it's a weird thing. It's like you could literally it, get away it with worked it. as they got away with with just you faking get away everything with, and making it real or something. You can I get know. away with anything now. I mean, yeah, that, that's right. The, yeah. the hips like the hipsters' favorite show right now is a show called uh, Love Is Blind, which in the '90s would have been like called the lamest conceivable show and like total sellout show but it's it's hits that jouissance point yeah, yeah. terrible and amazing car crash and everyone loves it and everyone wants to watch the housewives of fucking whatever people just love this terrible shit openly now uh and so the yeah. ir irony gave them cover but now the irony is not even needed because the irony is ubiquitous it's again an example where excess irony got it yeah that's led to an absence of irony where that's you no brilliant. longer are are thinking about the ironic aspect of it. And when we talk about attentionalism, for instance, that's a saturation of capitalism. So when the attentional like paradigm hits, like for real hits, is a point at which every interaction becomes a transaction. Every single interaction we have becomes a transaction, which is gonna happen vis-a-vis -vis data. Right now we're generating data for fucking Zoom, right? And they're gonna pa anonymize our data, package it and sell it. But at some point when that like, like reaches its sort of zenith and we have fucking, you know, uh, data unions and we're actually deriving some income from that and everything is a transaction. Well, then all of a sudden capitalism disappears because we're no longer aware of the transaction because the transaction is ubiquitous. We're just interacting and that interaction is a transaction. And all of a sudden the idea of capitalism sort of vanishes, even though it's now the fundamental equilibrium underpinning our activities. So again, this mm -hmm. excess absence, the thing and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. That's kind of, but that was kind of Marxist's theory though, that the thing would sort of yeah. play itself out. In yeah, way, yeah, yeah, right? exactly. Right. And that, that it yeah. wasn't that, that there were, the revolution would kind of just occur naturally. Right. And, it, and it, well, there's something a way that that's kind of true. Um, uh, and also there's something about this time now is that you can be less pretentious because you could just accept whatever. Like, you know, in the 90s, you had to be cool and and, yeah. and, and do the cool things and, and like the cool yeah. bands and, and you had to hate the bands that were not cool. Now you can just like bands that are not cool and, you know, and like you can you just get into whatever. Yeah. Uh, and that's more like, there's a way that there's, I like the earnestness of just, you know, I like being able to not have to be cool, to be a bit dorky. It's nice to be lame, you know, it's, yeah. it's really invigorating. It's it's yeah. also though the the flip side is that it, this is all being funded by capitalism. So capital, like what we're actually free to do is like commodities, and what we're actually feeling liberated to do is to treat ourselves as commodities. And so there's a there's you know, 
it's a very, very interesting and challenging to, to me, someone who like grew up socialist, very challenging. And this is again, how excess absence affects me personally is because I looked, I, for instance, I looked at those collapsed dynamics as a musician, I'm like, that's bad. And then I started to realize, wait a minute, those are the grounds for the next transition. And I look at the excess of capitalism, like that's bad. I'm like, wait a minute, those are the grounds for the coming communism. It's yeah. it's it's difficult to confront these things, but once you have this framework in mind, it sort of illuminates all things, and it gives. Well, it's a post-ideological framework, right? In a way, Kinda. I mean, you can't you can't yeah. be stuck to any particular ideology. You have to be very yeah. dynamic and and move between them all. Sort of, I guess yeah. Ken Rover would call that integral or, or something like that. But... Yeah, yeah, that's what I wanted to ask, Alex. So mm -hmm. if you if you take your your approach, so. Um, would you locate where would you locate yourself in that kind of spell dynamics, metamodernism, performantism kind of landscape? Is it something that you would do or is that none of your interest? Like like where we are as a culture at the moment? Um uh, I mean all of the aesthetic contradictions aside and 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 things that, that that prevent me from really taking up their mantle or anything like that um i should always keep in mind you know and and want to always remind people that like what i said earlier about each saturation point being isomorphic to a total infinity a true infinity as hegel would call it means that each time we saturate each time we have an excess we are rhizomatic to use Deleuzian terms we are infinite we have infinite self-relation within ourselves to ourselves that cracker which I repeat in excess could now suddenly be anything so I can't predict for instance that an excess of capitalism leads to an excess of communism necessarily I can make sort of uh, uh guesses best guesses but it's always important to remember that each time these saturations occur because they create a internal infinity they are black boxes because they're in excess of our capacity and so i mm. i i don't know where these things go so for instance in spiral dynamics oh we're we're blue and then we're purple and then we're going here and then this is going to happen um i sort of it's not that i reject that sort of thing all like right like straight out but it's missing a key component, which is that each time a phase shift occurs, we actually don't know uh, which way it's going to go. And um, and because, because it doesn't grapple with the indeterminate moments that are liminal between uh, 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 paradigms, it's also indicative to me that it doesn't want to grapple with the unconscious, that it doesn't want to grapple with the unknown, um, and that is essentially a function of the death drive. So again, I see that sort of thing, like the panic, like for instance, even the, even the term, uh, the meaning crisis is a perfect example of a absolute terror uh, in the face of the unconscious, in the face of excess. And I think that's problematic um, mm -hmm. because sacred time, to borrow, you know, Hamelrick's language, which I love, or whatever he's getting from Eliot or whatever, Sacred time is really fucking important for humanity. And the only the, the experience of sacred time is not 
you know, this ontologically ordered, stacked, uh, determinate uh, paradigm. It's a moment where you submerge and potentially lose your identity momentarily, lose your space and time, lose your contextual uh, sense. And um, and that's important for me as an artist. I think it's also important as a society. Otherwise, we get uh, really maybe Maybe Integral on. wasn't that good of an example. But, you know, we were talking about kind of eternal truth, you know, going back to, oh, okay. to, to the Iliad and that kind of reverberates through, through our cultural oh, sure. history. And yeah, then yeah. Of the, on the other side, you have, you know, the cultural sensibilities. You know, it's what you just mentioned about irony, that it's, that it's like that irony surpassed itself to become something true again. Right, and that is that is a, that is that is not a postmodern sensibility. That is something you could call metamodernism. You could call it sure. performatism, whatever. And so, yeah. in, in that kind of sense, I I, I I meant you're not you're not going at it as a postmodernist. That's no, just no, critiquing, I, the, 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 critiquing uh, a capitalism and the systems that are, but kind yeah. of that's what I mean. Yeah, I mean uh, the 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 metamodern ironic sincerity. I think they call it um uh rings true you know and and uh and the idea that you know we can put together all the various you know uh movements and that we're sort of in this liminal meta meaning in between uh place where we have this perspectival in betweenness which is where meaning is made in any event is in between things not the things themselves and so in, in that sense there's a lot of resonance with it but yeah i guess i don't really have much common I, I think the one thing that you know there's a lot of prescriptive it's very prescriptive and um yeah just the prescriptive aspect again speaks to this no, like you know we need a religion that's not a religion we need this we need that yeah, a meaning right. all these things are very they're not riding the tide they're not living the life they're not seeing that this chaos is part of the transition and yeah, instead of right. acting it's almost like they're they're not they're afraid to be affirmative about the whole thing yes in a sort of tantric way tantric way is like whatever happens let it be and you know yes. this is fantastic you know if anything, whatever even if, if it's even if it's if, if if it's apocalyptic and 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 crazy and and there's an embrace of of everything and yeah, they, uh, and there seems to be in that there seems to be a sort of Puritan quality of of doom in, in in a lot of the that that kind of what you were speaking of like like oh, we have to create this sort of new thing to save be saved we're trying to be saved all the time maybe that's it yeah I mean I think that it'll 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 have a lot of like the game B game C all these ideas as frameworks I think will have a purpose but they won't be the forcing function. They'll have a purpose once this paradigm has exhausted itself and reached its excess point and absence. And then we'll be like, oh, what is left? What are the are there frameworks that would work for this new paradigm? Oh, here's one game C or whatever. But those games and this thing, they're not going to be the forcing function. The forcing function is the exhausting of the current paradigm. And so if they were really to see that, they would actually be espousing something more like a accelerationist viewpoint where they're like, okay, let's really get through this then. Like, how can we accelerate this process oh. to the next to the next level? Well, that's um, cool. I never thought I was I always had a negative view of acceleration, but you've given me a new perspective yeah. on it. I always thought it was a sort of, uh, I don't know, malevolent kind of. It is. I mean, it's philosophy. It's, very, what? it's kind of a doom doomsday ish sort of doomer thing. But uh, but 
like you can't really be a Hegelian and not address acceleration, accelerationism, uh, because if if what creates phase shifting are quantitative thresholds, which is everything, almost everything we know about in terms of phase shifting requires quantitative thresholds, then then what you're looking to do is. Uh, exhaust any given paradigm if you want that paradigm to change by reaching the threshold. Now, that's not to say we can't create new limits. So for instance, being an environmentalist is an example where you don't just let the limit, being the health of the earth, uh, be the limit. It's like, oh, well, we'll be the earth will be healthy once we exhaust all the resources. Yeah, right, right. right? That would be like allowing the ultimate limit to be accessed. Instead, an environmentalist is like, I'm going to create a new limit, and that's going to be my fucking annoying angst and protest. And you're going to have to now, and we're going to create this sort of abstract limit around behavior and be like, no, that's not okay. And that's not okay. We're going to create a social limit around behaviors, around uh, uh, commodification of various, uh, you know, whatever. And so you can create new limits and then like that, can be tolerated up to a point and then suddenly intolerance occurs and you can create that intolerance at which point uh, behavior shifts. So I, I use the, the example of environmentalists a lot because it's a good example of basically creating fault, like not false limits, but creating a, 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 an internal limit and a limit internal to the ultimate limit, which would be just the destruction of the earth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I was thinking as you're talking about because I again I, I I go back into my religious mystical terms of vehicles and there's like the slow vehicle, which is the Hinayana. It's like things are happening slowly, right? And then there's the open vehicle, which is like okay, like the the Mahayana, which is the open field, the open field of possibility of potential. And then and then and then the Vajrayana is when you enter the quantum universe or, or something where where you're no longer in this linear stage model of existence here things happen very directly and intensely and and and, and they speed up a lot they accelerate um yeah and and again just to clarify what i was saying like you can accelerate you know like we could accelerate this conversation by being like we have a we have a limit at uh we have a limit in six minutes we're yeah. going to get off the call right and so what do we want to pack into these six minutes so you can accelerate something within sort of rhetorical, newly made limits. You do it when you're raising kids. You put, you place all these totally made up limits all the time. Like, oh, we're doing this in a half hour. That's it. Got to go to bed. Uh, you know, it's not real, but you just imposed a new limit. And so it expedites the process of being awake. Right. So, um, so there's a way to view accelerationism when you're an active participant in the acceleration, where you're imposing new limitations to accelerate a paradigm more confined and more constrained so that not, a, you know, it could be flipped. So it's not nefarious, but actually really beneficial. Yeah, I think you need a, a limit to accelerate. That's the cool idea that you're just yeah. giving me. You, could, you couldn't just accelerate in a void or, or you no. wouldn't, be, moving, wouldn't going, be going anywhere. You'd be standing still. I mean, this, Once you and have this a limit, to, then you have acceleration. And this comes to artistic, like, you know, the uh, we were talking about distortion earlier. Uh, what's his name? Brian Eno has a whole thing about, you know, the only art that's ever really created that's meaningful are when uh, limits are, are pushed. So you have like, and they become the defining feature of that medium, I think is what he says. So you have the, the amplifier and you 
push it to its limit, it creates distortion. Then suddenly distortion is the signature sound of the amplifier, which was not meant to be distorted, right? You found mm -hmm. the breaking point. And, um, and so the case is, that's the case with, like, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And I just gave a talk about this recently. I have everything I need over there at that studio. Like I have fucking everything I need. So how do I create necessity? I have everything I need. So how do I create necessity in order to create invention, to really invent, right? Otherwise, I'm just going to be doing everything just exactly the right way. I got all the mics. I'll set them up. I have the luxury of time, set them all up in just the right way, record everything just the way it's supposed to be done and invent nothing because I'm doing everything by rote, exactly the way it's supposed to be done. So when you have everything, you have to invent necessities. So you create limitations. Oh my God, I have a time constraint. It's a fake time constraint, but thankfully I'm yeah. someone who's really impatient. So I'm constantly just rushing. People are like, what is your sound? I go rushing. That's how I, that's how I come up with a new sound. I just rush like, oh, I need a tambourine. Don't have one. I guess, uh, I guess this is going to have to do. That's how and the what does that sound? That, yeah, that's and often, that, often uh, amazing about that documentary, isn't it? They had like a time yeah. restraint for four weeks, and exactly, it was See, amazing. You, you can create these restraints, these limitations, and suddenly you produce something new yeah. again, right? So again, it's this example where you create constraints, you access those constraints, and then you know, or you work within those limitations, and something new is born. And um, that's why artists that's, suck too. Does that later on in their career? Yeah, because right? they end up in with the no beginning. They just had a guitar and or something, right. and that was it, right? And then and then and a few like an orchestra and a fucking producers yeah. everywhere, and yeah, and they lose it. I know. I knew this guy named Rufus Wainwright, and I listened to him play piano in in Montreal, and he he did these beautiful love songs, and then he got produced by the Pet Sounds director. The guy, Eddie, his album was so produced and beautiful. It was, it sucked, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. and, and, and his, his, just his songs were so good. I, I was like, all he needed was, was the most, all he needed was to, to constrain himself in the most yeah. severe way. And that would be capturing the essence of what he did. But because, because he allowed producers to, uh, to, to try to inflate him to infinity, to be this great star, then, then, then he, in a way he lost something. Yeah. Uh, that's a fucking okay. tried and true story. Everyone. Okay, guys. So the limit is now. <laughs> Have we well, reached the limit? Have we reached? We the, reached are we saturated now. yet? Yes. <laughs> I feel like I could go on forever with this stuff, but it's it's such a pleasure. Anyway, thank you. Yeah, thanks yeah. for inviting me, guys.